Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank Precision Pro Golf for being a sponsor. I think you know by now we just finished filming the next season of Tourist Sauce out in Oregon. Uh, part of that was uh, out at Bandon Dunes. You may have seen video of Solly's Hole-in-One out there at the beautiful Preserve Par 3 course. What the video shows is his swing, the ball bouncing, going into the cup, the wild celebration that ensued. But what it doesn't show is what took place just before that. We had used the NX9 slope rangefinder from Precision Pro Golf to shoot the distance and pick the right club. In fact, we used the NX9 slope throughout our trip in Oregon. It was fast, accurate, and reliable. Everybody from the C-suite to the Strat Boys and the NARC, we all trust Precision Pro Golf to get us to the green. Right now, our listeners can receive an extra $20 off the NX9 slope by using our coupon code TRAPDRAW. Go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code TRAPDRAW, all one word, at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 Slope. Precision Pro Golf is also the only rangefinder company that offers free battery replacement services, so you're not only getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. Swing with confidence, hit more greens, and maybe even get yourself a hole-in-one with Precision Pro Golf. Now on to today's interview with Chris McKendry. I was hoping you could take me through a little bit of your background. I know folks, obviously listeners will know you from your ESPN days, both on SportsCenter and now transitioning into hosting the tennis majors full-time. And I was just right. hoping you could talk about how you fell in love with the game of tennis, what that was like growing up. Was it exclusively tennis? How you got into the game? Um, well, I got into tennis as I got into many sports growing up. I played everything under the sun. I'm a Philadelphia native of, of city proper, Philadelphia. And I grew up with three brothers, so played a ton of sports. And got into tennis um, through the playground system, through public parks, um, as a team sport. You know, my parents introduced me to playing. Then I saw that we're in the summertime, you could play as a team sport. And when tennis became a team sport, I got infinitely, you know, more interested. So that was probably later grade school or middle school years. And then I played in high school and then went on to play, you know, as well as other sports in high school. But tennis by mid-high school years was clearly becoming my favorite. And then I played at Drexel University. So I went off to college to play um, and started working in television while in college in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, went to Sports Center now almost 25 years ago. Um, after a quick stop in Washington, D.C., and always kind of had my hand up for, um, you know, if you ever need somebody to cover tennis, I, I like the sport, I, you know, like the athletes, and I know the sport. You know, I think it's important. A lot of people like the travel and like the big events, but how well do you know the sport? So, you know, it's really a, a matter of I just kept raising my hand saying, hey, if you ever need somebody, 
And, you know, about 15 years after I started raising my hand, they called on me. (laughs) (laughs) I started working Grand Slam tennis. Um, In addition to, you know, always getting the opportunity to do other assignments, like anything from Little League World Series to the X Games to all of that. And um, when I started doing Grand Slam tennis, I really, really enjoyed it. And then about four years ago, made the tradition, you know, transition to just um, covering tennis events, which has been fantastic. Yeah, and, and I want to I want to dive into uh, several of those things you mentioned, but I I can't let you gloss over your own tennis career. I, I have to ask you, who were your favorite yeah. players growing up, and and also more importantly, what was your game like? Uh, did you have a favorite surface well, to play on? Oh yeah, I mean a hard court surface. You know, very typical kid who grew up in the eighties, uh, hard court tennis. You know, so I was um, a lot of top. In, you know, we, we were the original, everybody would play with their big old Prince Pro rackets, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, and definitely a baseline game. Um, I loved, of course, growing up, you know, Chris Everett, who is now a very good friend and a colleague and, you know, but I definitely grew up watching Chrissy. Everybody did in, mm-hmm. in the U S I had a great appreciation for Billie Jean King. Um, I was, I was raised to really understand what she was as an athlete and who she was as a humanitarian in person. So I know how much she's done for women like myself. And and at the time, you know, girls who were just looking for the opportunity to play. So I I loved watching them. And then, I mean, because she was practically my age, but winning, you know, grand slam tournaments like Steffi Groff, you know, so that was kind of the same time I was playing and happy to be playing in college. You know, she was off completing, you know, the golden slam in 88. So (laughs) that was a great time, you know, to grow up. And, you know, but of course was very familiar with all the guy players too. I mean, you know, Johnny Mack, of course, and, and, you know, Jimmy Connors, but then, you know, Sampras, I, you know, was tremendous. And he was, you know, playing when I was, you know, starting my sports career and Jim Currier and Andre Agassi and, you know, all the American, American greats. What did you have? I, I'm always curious, people, uh, and, and this is coming from somebody who played Division Three basketball. So I, I certainly had uh, a moment like this in in my own career. Uh, was there a moment, maybe in high school or at Drexel? Did you ever think about uh, maybe playing professionally, or, or when did no. that moment come where it was like, no. you know what, I better find something else to do? <laughs> yeah, never. I mean, I was I was so happy just to be on, you know, be asked by a college program to be part of their team. I mean, honestly, I, w- I had no delusions of where, where my career was going. I was very, very happy with that. And actually, I, I received my first full-time job in a sports department when I was still in college. So going into my senior year, I went to my coach and I said, I just don't know how this is, how am I going to make this work? But I, I knew, you know, opportunities like this in a, in a big city weren't coming around too often. And she said, well, you have to, you know, that's where you're going to actually succeed. She thought <laughs> working in sports and journalism and putting my education to use. So um, tennis was very short-lived. I had no visions of, of being a pro. And you know what? I, I also learned one time, I might have been a freshman or a sophomore in college. Maybe it was even young, freshman year. But we were playing a big regional event. And I can't remember, you know, what it was or but there was a a woman on one of the other teams another school um 
and she was like their number one player and she was the woman in the tournament and she was going to play pro you know she was going from college to try to you know make it and i never saw her name in the pro ranks maybe she got up to number like 300 you know yeah. so it's just perspective as you know like the, the leap from high school to college is big and the leap from college to professionals is enormous mm-hmm uh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I read <laughs> no. I, I read you were a humanities major. Did you know all along yes. you wanted to get into journalism and specifically sports? And was <laughs> no. did, did you think TV was was going to be your future? Um, no. Yeah, I went to an engineering school to major in television sports, but <laughs> no, I, I definitely did not. And it was actually. Um, only from sophomore year or so because I was located in the city um, that I, I was just interested in. I had extra time on my hands because of the school I went to, Drexel University, is a co-op school. So you work half the year and you go to school half the year, but you find yourself on campus, you know, a lot. So I just went to the local TV station, which was at two L stops, you know, as we know it in Philly, but like two subway stops away and started interning. Um, I was interested in news, and I thought it would be a good way to spend some of my summer hours. And then they were looking for someone to go out and interview some Eagles players, um, you know, at a training camp. And I said, oh, I could do that in a heartbeat. I'll go. And um, and then I came back from that, and the sports department, you know, said, you should come work in our department if you like sports. And you know, at the time, I didn't really think there was a place for a young woman who wanted to who knew sports to work in sports. I hadn't seen it before. Um, and I guess that's why I'm a big believer in making sure people can really see what they want to become, like see it and you can, you know, believe it. But I, um, I didn't have ESPN. I didn't have cable TV growing up. <laughs> so I didn't see a local sportscaster. So I didn't think of it. Anyway, they convinced me and then really mentored me and, and, you know, showed me the ropes. And then I went home after a couple of months and told my mom, I think I'm going to change and I'm going to become a sportscaster. And she was like, what? The <laughs> She's like, okay, well, good luck with that. And it was very encouraging, but just told me, you know, I hope you're going to be a good one because that seems like a pretty tough industry. <laughs> so that's, that's how I got hooked then into working for sports or in sports and, and deciding I was going to pursue this. Yeah, and and correct me if I'm wrong. You had mentioned going to work in Washington D.C. That market, yeah. and I believe yeah. we're, we're, I've read. Uh, you know, don't believe everything you read on the internet, but I, I think you were right. the first woman to uh, work as a television sports news anchor in that market. Is that is that right? Well, yeah, I was the first woman um, who you know I was the weekend news anchor or the weekend sports anchor. Excuse me. I mean, I was I you know I was hired to be. You know, a lot of times they would have, you know, a, a man Monday through Friday anchoring a man on the weekend. And if they had a third person in the department, and if it was a woman, she was your reporter. But um, Channel 7 in Washington um, said, no, we're going to make you the weekend anchor. And, um, yeah, so so I spent two years there with a great group of guys and really fantastic market for, for you know, journalism and, and for sports and um, and. And yeah, so I was. And then after two years there is when I went up to ESPN. Gotcha. Uh, do you, I, I'm really curious to hear your perspective. Um, I, I can't imagine, I, I'm sure you have lots of stories. I'm sure some of them uh, <laughs> not not particularly good stories about trying to break into that field. Uh, but, but I think of, 
you know, at least my perception is it's still somewhat of a struggle for women to break through and really uh, find a footing, especially in traditionally male sports. So one one name I, that comes to the top of my mind is I'm a huge fan of Mina Kimes, who, you know, works mm-hmm. at ESPN alongside you and, and what she's been able to do as far as right. really becoming a voice uh, in in the game of football and, and NFL specifically. Right. Do you think right. how, how do you assess uh, compared to your experience in the in the early '90s? I, what's changed? What's easier? Is there anything harder as far as women breaking into the sports um, uh, media business? Some things haven't changed quickly enough, um, but there, the one I would say the biggest thing that has changed, and I love seeing it, is when I was coming up, networks they just needed one. You know, there was a lot of tokenism. Like, you need your one woman, and you need your one this, and your one that. You know, everybody needed the mod squad, right? And now I find it's okay um, to have more than one. You know, I I still remember the day, and and people were making such a big deal out of it, and I really thought to myself, I wish we didn't make such a big deal out of every time women do something like this, because let's just quietly go about our jobs and do it really well. And next thing you know, it doesn't always have to be with such fanfare. But I remember being on the sports center show when Linda Cohn and Hannah Storm were doing a show and turned around and threw it to Sage Steele and I, and of course, in a PR announcement has to go out two women threw it to two women. And I just thought, you know, like when will we ever reach a point where this isn't setting precedent? Uh, You know, every time a woman does something, so what I love to see now, and that has changed a lot, is the best people are getting positions. And I think the best people are getting hired. And it's no longer like, oh, we don't need um, you know, someone as terrific as Mina because we already have a woman doing football for us. So there's more opportunity for women, which is great. You see women working together. I think it's lent a lot of support to women supporting one another, women championing, you know, being somebody else's champion without feeling threatened. Oh, if I teach you how to do my job, you're going to take my job because they only need one of us here. Mm -hmm. You know, and and there was a lot of that when I was coming up. So I love seeing, I love seeing that change. And I love just seeing more people, you know, get opportunities. There's no longer um, looking, you know, looking the part. I mean, that's not to be naive. It's a visual medium, but, you know, you're not going to take someone who's just clearly superbly talented and say, but wait, she doesn't look the part, you know, like does Doris look the part of probably one of the best, if not in my mind, the best analyst out there talking about men's basketball, but she certainly is. She's the best. And, and I just love that we've gotten past that. You know, we do it a lot with tennis. Tennis is tennis. I mean, you know, I don't care if you're a woman or, or a man. I mean, if you want Christy to break down your game, oh, she'll break down your game. <laughs> you, know, you, yes. wanna, you know, so I, I like that we've gotten past and over those type of hurdles, you know, and there's always going to be situations that come up that you think, really, we're still here. Um, you know, I was reading about what Maria Taylor had to deal with this week, and I just thought, that is, like, there are no words for that anymore, you know, but so instances like that still happen, but I do think we've come quite far. Someone along those lines, uh, I'm, I'm always curious because I think um, a lot of guys, I, I'll just be honest, a lot of guys don't yeah. really understand um, 
about social media and sometimes just the absolute vitriol that I think yeah. women are more subjected to maybe than men, and, and but on a oh. much more mm-hmm. personal level. And so I know you have a Twitter account. I, I just was yeah. curious how you deal with that and, and almost how you weigh the benefits and against the costs of social media. Well, I'm not on much social media, as you probably can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do Instagram. I don't do um, Snap or anything like that. I, I signed up. I got on Twitter because work wanted me to do it you know when when yeah. we launched the, when they launched the dayside um sports center um because it's going back like a decade ago i guess and i was one of the younger teams to that um newly created i mean really show like sports center show and and you know they they just thought it would be a good idea so everybody sort of got on it which is for a while my twitter handle was all caps and it wasn't that i was screaming at anybody i didn't even know that's what caps <laughs> meant I was at a broken I was at a broken keyboard in the newsroom when I signed up for Twitter, and that's how I ended up screaming at people for seven years on Twitter as C McKendry underscore ESPN. So finally, when I realized what I was doing, that's when I changed my um, my Twitter to just at Chris McKendry, which then cost me my little blue check for a couple of years because right. they thought I was messing messing with my account. I just I don't know. So clearly, I'm not that savvy. Um, and I'm not sure the benefits outweigh, you know, the, the nastiness. Um, I'm usually now just on it, um, you know, during tournaments, you know, to keep tennis information out there, like to keep engaged, you know, with fans. Um, you know, every once in a while, I'll throw person, something personal up there. And, but you know what you realize, like, so I have it, I have teenage son and I put something funny about my, my one son when he was just like starting to drive a text message he has sent me and I shared it on Twitter and one of my friends, colleagues actually a work friend said, he's going to kill you and I and I asked him <laughs> you know, I asked my son I said, are you bothered? I put it out on Twitter and he goes, mom, old people read Twitter and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like already like, teenagers are like, Twitter, come on so I think it's a vicious I mean, how do you keep up? Um, but then other times on Twitter, you know, like I'm sure if I if I understand correctly, you and and your successful business here and your friends, you you were all just very funny on on a text chat, right? And then you said, why are we keeping all this good humor to ourselves? And you put it out there. I think more people should do that. There are times people will tweet things at me, and it honestly makes me crack up. And I think if you want like if, if you weren't so afraid and like hid behind this, you might have something here, buddy. You know? yeah. You're pretty funny. You're a pretty good writer. Yeah. Um, but but it, it can be harsh and it can be really personal. And um, you know, when I first started doing um, you know, some of the grand slams, you know, people were really questioning whether or not I knew what I was talking about and knew the players. And you know, it's a sport that has you know, much like golf, a, an audience that. Um, you know, they, they really know their sport. They really know the players. Um, they will always know more than you. <laughs> and, um, and I was getting kind of attacked and I just went back at one person once and I said, I'm sitting here in the Australian open and you're on your couch hollering at me. I win, <laughs> you know, I'm living my yeah. dream and you're at home. I'm winning, you mm-hmm. know, and there's, and I try to just take that attitude of, 
I'm not mean to people out there. I'm just trying to, you know, inform or do my best or whatever. And some people just come at you with hate no matter what. And, you know, I, I try to just not pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, as you alluded to, I, I think it's something that we owe a ton of success to social media as, as a business and and being able to get this whole thing started. Um, but it's, it's, it's just a very fascinating area for me because it's, it's so new to really, um, society that like, it just, I don't know. I, I go back and forth between like, is this really good for anybody? Uh, but but you can find, and I think we are fortunate enough, and I think it takes a lot of work to to carve out pockets where it can be entertaining, and you can have some really right. rewarding, fulfilling interactions with people. But you, 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 I right. think you have to really work for that. No, I I totally agree, and I I kind of just see it as an evolution in some ways of of everything, right? I mean. I've spent my whole career in cable television. I mean, now, you know, we'll appear on ABC or whatever, you know, with the ABC ESPN under Disney. But, you know, there was a time when the networks looked at ESPN, like we were the crazy internet people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they had, they had us young people out there just writing our own shows and making jokes and saying words that didn't even, they weren't even in the dictionary. We were making <laughs> them up. And, you know, we weren't tape delaying things to air in prime time we were just telling everybody what the score was and like giving up the big secret you know <laughs> fine put, put your olympics on on tape delay we're going to tell everybody who won gold well that wasn't happening in you know 1980 or whenever so you know i, I have an appreciation for the evolution of it all um and even you know when espn.com launched i loved writing for page two i loved having a column i mean it was it was um, something I found incredibly rewarding, writing columns for page two. Now, I wasn't going out to a newspaper. You know, I was never hired by a newspaper, but it it gave me an audience that was sometimes bigger than many papers, you yeah. know, and, and I, I thoroughly loved it. Um, so I'm all for it. I just, I just haven't exactly thrown myself into it <laughs> sure. and decided you know, in the middle of trying to keep my career going and work on assignments that I find fulfilling and raise my family, I'm going to try to conquer Instagram. Like, no, that wasn't happening in my <laughs> world. <laughs> that wasn't it. Well, that's a that's a really interesting parallel between the, the cable TV. I, I had never thought about it in those terms before. Hey guys, Randy again. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I want to thank one more sponsor of today's episode, Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered you are, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from both your workouts and just the normal everyday stressors of life. The NLU team, we've all been wearing Whoops now for a few months, and I can tell you it's really interesting. It collects data 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, The strap fits very comfortably. I'm wearing it on my left wrist right now. And for me, the, the biggest insights are one, my sleep patterns uh, not only you know it tracks how much sleep I'm getting, but it tracks the the quality of the sleep. It measures the different stages of sleep, from slow wave, REM, light sleep, uh, to those times where you know you're awake in the middle of the night and you don't even you know you can't even remember the next morning. With that, uh, each each day it gives you a recovery score, which is based on a lot of different factors, including the sleep, the the strain on your body the day before. 
And that provides a great insight into, it really validates kind of how I'm feeling, right? So it helps me plan my day. If I, if I have a really good recovery, I'm usually feeling fresh, can really plan to get a good workout in. Um, and then there are days uh, like coming back from Oregon where my recovery is down in the single digits and, you know, I'm just feeling slow and it's easier to tell myself, you know what, I'm going to take it easy today. Let's just rest the body, refuel, and get that recovery back up uh, so we can begin, you know, working out again, getting a little sweat in, that type of thing. Right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code TRAPJAW at checkout. So go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code TRAPJAW, all one word, to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop today. We thank them very much for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And now back to my conversation with Chris McKendry. Can I ask you about Sports Center? So I read a quote. Sure. Um, I, I believe your first Sports Center, or you joined Sports Center in 1996. And I believe the quote yeah. I read from you was uh, something to the effect of, you know, you were a newly hired reporter visiting Bristol and they needed. Essentially, they're looking for somebody to fill in. Is, is that right? Yeah. And it was like 20 years later, I, I never left. C can you talk about <laughs> I, yeah how, how you got on the Sports Center desk? I'm still and that waiting to go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, so I was actually hired to be a reporter for a while based in Washington, D.C. You know, so I wasn't going to leave D.C. I was going to be hired to be a reporter based in D.C. But they had known, you know, I'd, I had anchor experience. And I think they were waiting to bring me up to Connecticut after, you know, this was maybe six months or so before ESPN News launched, right? So they didn't have a stable of anchors there yet. You were still like, you know, this 10 to 12 people who did SportsCenter. And that, that's all you had in the building. And if you weren't on SportsCenter, you were doing Baseball Tonight Raps or you were doing, I mean, you know, if you remember back to the early 90s, it was the same 12 people who did everything on every yeah, right, show. Right, right. So, so they didn't, they were pretty, you know, stretched pretty thin. And um, so they brought me up to Bristol to just see how things worked for a couple of weeks. You know, get the idea of like if you're a reporter and you're filing, you know, your report or these are your anchors, this is how the show's put together, whatever. I was just kind of hanging out in Bristol and um, they, they needed somebody for a Saturday morning sports center. Um, supposed to be easy, solo show, 30 minutes long. It was just, you know, the traditional Saturday morning show. And I, they said, could you do it? And I said, yeah, I think I could do it, sure. And that night, the Olympic Park bomb went off that Saturday night. Mm. So, or that Friday night into Saturday morning, it went off at like whatever, one or two in the morning, it was super late. And, um, and I was that Saturday morning show. So they threw me on the air and I was anchoring about the Olympic Park bomb in Atlanta. And I was on the air, you know, by myself for a little more than an hour or so. Um, and, you know, the executives were all in. Everybody was, it was all kind of all hands on deck. And after that show, they said, you're not, you're not a reporter. You're an anchor. You're a sports center anchor. Done. We're sold. <laughs> and you're moving to Bristol, Connecticut. And I was like, wait, what? What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember that being part of the deal. Like I thought I was in Washington, but of course I wasn't a fool. You'd say yes, right? So um, that's how I ended up being an anchor right away. And uh, yeah, that I haven't left. I'm still in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. On, on somewhat of a lighter note, I, I want to ask you about the, mm -hmm. the different Sports Center aesthetics, like the set yeah. of Sports Center, because it's changed right. through the years. 
And I think right. the, the, the one that I always close my eyes and see is that um, it, it, it's essentially like the early 90s, like the blue. Mm-hmm. Bit, I, I, I don't know how to better describe it. But, but my question to you is like when you close your eyes and think about you know, 20 plus years on, on the desk at sports center. Like what, right. what's the aesthetic that you think of? Um, it's not the current day one. I think that enormous studio that it's currently in, there's, there's like an, and I, and I don't mean this, you know, I mean, I'm very loyal and it's giving me a wonderful life. And I wouldn't want it to sound <laughs> like I'm being critical of the product that's there now. But there's something about the enormity when we went to that studio and you were always standing up. It took away from the intimacy how you felt like you really knew the anchor, right? Like it was my face and my words right there talking to you. Yeah. And then suddenly I felt like it's a graphic that's 20 times bigger than me screaming at you. And I'm just hoping you can even realize I'm on the screen, let alone maybe it's a lead and I, I spend some time crafting. You know, so I, I wasn't a fan of my last studio. <laughs> I think my favorite was the original one or the original one I was on. It still sort of had the curved desk and you sat right next to each other side by side with um, the screen sort of over your shoulder. And then the third person, like I did a lot of six o'clock, the third person would sit in like a little bookstore off to the left. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And it was Austin. Bob Lee was over there a lot in the beginning. And we used to call that the general store because he was the general and (laughs) it looked like a store. So that set is the one I remember. That's the one I kind of debuted on and spent, you know, my early years. And that really was kind of like a big memory of sitting on, on that set. I think probably because of the people I was on the set with too. They made, such an impression, um, you know, on me early in my career. And I just remember being on that set, like every day thinking, I hope I wrote this well enough. Like, I hope they like my writing. I hope somebody would laugh at one of my jokes because, you know, there were some really um, intimidating and very talented people. And, you know, so anyway, I just, that was just every day I would sit out there and be like, okay, who am I entering with today? (laughs) Oh my God, you know? And uh, kind of white knuckles your way through a couple of hours. So that's that's still, you know, my my memory. Did any co-anchors intimidate you? At least initially? Oh, all of them. <laughs> initially, all of them. Are you kidding me? I was petrified. Um, it, yes, initially I was uber intimidated. Um, and But it made me work hard. And, like um, My first, when I first, God, there. I started doing Sunday morning shows with Jack Edwards, who I don't know if you remember Jack. He, of course. He yeah. now makes quite a few headlines saying crazy things when he's calling Bruin games. <laughs> I read. But he was so nice. But he was like working next to a volcano. I mean, you never knew like when he was going to like go crazy over something. Um, but he was intimidating. I mean, Bob Lee. I mean, Bob's like your brilliant uncle. You just always want to please. Like, oh my God, tell me I'm doing a good job. You know, you always want Uncle Bob's approval. And, you know, Charlie Steiner, I mean, he was just an enormous presence and Robin. And, you know, so I always would sit down and and just be like, okay, put in your best work. Like, whatever you do, work as hard as you can and and learn, you know. But that was just it. I mean, as much as people were, you know, you're intimidated because you knew of the reputation and the popularity of the program at the time. Um, 
as long as you could pull your weight and do your work, they were welcoming, you know, and they were encouraging. I never felt like anyone discouraged me. It was always encouraging, but you knew the bar was pretty high. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I, I didn't want to be someone they felt they were dragging across the finish line. So you just worked harder. Um, but yeah, I was definitely intimidated. <laughs> One more question. Who's the funniest anchor? And that could be on air or off air. I, I imagine they're probably uh, all funnier off air. I, yeah, I think a lot of people are funnier off air. I, I honestly think off air, and so many people have stolen his stuff over the years from what he would say off air, but he wouldn't use on air. Bill Pito is a hilarious person. Okay. So Bill Pito was a very funny man who had a lot of quirks and people would steal them and use them all the time on the air. <laughs> so he, he's, he's very funny. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I felt like a lot of people were funny. I mean, but funny and a very wry, you know, nobody was like giggly funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody was, little warped funny yeah. but that's kind of better right <laughs> i i mean that's like, that's the the golden age of sports center i i think was more of a i, I don't yeah. want to say comedy show but it, it was for me at least the enjoyment was just as much the jokes and the delivery as as certainly as much as the highlights and the, and the box scores right and, yeah right i mean the games i loved working one of my favorite um Shifts was the early 2000s when I did the six o'clock with um, half of your listeners are going to be like, what's she talking about? I wasn't born, but um, they, I did it with like Trey Wingo and Kenny Maine and myself. And we, we laughed so hard. We would, we would come into the morning meeting. We'd go to this local golf course. Like it had nine holes or something right down the road in, in the middle of Bristol. We'd play golf for like an hour, 20 minutes while the producer was putting in the show. Then we'd go back and write it. And half of the things we'd say on air, Kenny, first of all, is a very, very funny person. But with that, you know, like I find most very funny comedians, he's also very sensitive. He's very, very smart. You know, so he was always just fun to be around. And Trey is a kind of, he's just a troublemaker. So we had the best <laughs> time. But so many things we'd say on the air, it was, it was inside jokes. And people were convinced they were in on it. But that was kind of the fun. And, <laughs> You know, I still care. We try to carry that over. You know, I do at least with my tennis crew. Like, it's fine. Like, we don't have to be perfect out here, mm-hmm. but make sure we're having a damn good time because we're the we're the venue. And especially this year, if you were open, that I can guarantee you nobody else was at. I'm like, we're doing something people put on a bucket list, they dream about, they hope to visit one day. The last thing we can do is look like this isn't a fun time because mm-hmm. this is this is the best. You know, so. I, I I think we used to really carry that attitude with us on, on Sports Center. That's from a viewer's perspective. I mean, we we obviously watch a lot of golf, but it just makes such a difference when the crew has. I, I think you can really tell when there's an authentic chemistry and and people play off each other, um, and, and when they really can have fun and be relaxed and and joke and, I, and show different sides of themselves. Like that, that is so important as a viewer tuning in. It, it really is. I mean, sometimes it just happens organically. Like, you could never envision it. And then you start working alongside somebody, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is just the easiest work I've done. This is great, you know. And there are other times that you can you see pairings or, you know, groups are be asked to be part of a pairing or a group. And it just has, 
I don't know. It has a consultant's fingerprints all over it, and it's never going to work. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and and you can you can tell when that when that happens. Like somebody thought this was a good idea, or somebody, um, you know, just just wanted to do this, but it, it's not. There's not an authenticity to to you know to this um, crew, and and it eventually it shows. I mean, I I like to think so. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. okay. I got, I got to, if we can transition to tennis a little bit, I, I have sure. to ask you and you can, you can, whatever, uh, criteria you want to use, but I'm going to hold your okay. feet to the fire. You have to uh-huh. power rank oh, gosh. the four All grand right. slams in order of Chris McKendry each year. What do you look forward to the most? One, one to four. Okay. One to four. Um, Australia is a favorite. Um, it's first, okay, this isn't to, to, to mitigate my ranking. <laughs> every, every single one has its own personality. Oh. Truly, you know, almost like the golf majors, right? Yes. Everyone has a different personality to it that it's almost hard to compare. But Australia is a big summertime party. And it's not like the U.S. Open, which is also a bigger than life show. Um, the U.S. Open is a bit more corporate, right? It's it's corporate New York that comes in a lot. Um, you know, you see people standing around in suits and ties still in their suites. There's a lot of business being done. Um, you know, a lot of people right off the train from work, which is all great, but it's not the party. Australia is like everybody straight from the beach. <laughs> Australia, <laughs> people go to the Australian Open the way you know, how many people do you know will tell you, oh, I went to the Super Bowl and they never stepped foot in the game. They're just there for the Super Bowl week. And that is what the Australian Open is. People will come from all over. And I mean, they, the grounds are huge and tennis is happening. They may never have a ticket into labor, never see one of the big matches, but they go to the Australian Open every year. So it's just a festival. And Australians absolutely love their sport and have a great appreciation for, for tennis as one of their big four sports. So that's really fun. Plus, it's been a decade since I spent January in New England. So that's really nice because I go to Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's been great. And it's just that kind of break. And, and um, you know, it's right after the holidays. And I just have always felt like I've it's been like a stolen month of of good fortune for me. So I, I really love it there a lot. Um, and then I like Wimbledon because it's the tradition of the sport. So we'll put Wimbledon number two. And I like that a lot. Just, I can't believe I'm the person who actually says you're watching breakfast at Wimbledon. Like every year I say it, I go, Holy God, that, yeah. that came out of my mouth. Like I, Chris McKenzie now says that, like, you know, not the Denberg or Bob Costas or Bud Collins. Me? You know? <laughs> so that will forever be a thrill. And it's really fun there. We all live in little homes right around the court. So, um, you know, talent, like we're in the same house together and it causes a lot of fun times and silliness. And, you know, it's just easy. We just get up and walk to work right from the house and, all the players are in homes too, and it's just a unique environment, and it's Wimbledon. And then I put um, three would be the U.S. Open, but you know, U.S. Open's my home slam, so that's a very like a 
two and a half. <laughs> but uh, I do like the Earth Open. The Earth Open is a hectic one. It's busy. Yeah. And, um, but it's, there's nothing better. Like, I realized this year, and I always knew it, but, like, this whole week, I've been like, wow, I'm just exhausted. You know, and <laughs> what I realized is how much energy I get from the fans at the U.S. Open. Like, trying to set up the shows and interview the athletes at night, and, and like, without the fans cheering, and without just the energy of New York, it took a lot of energy. Like, it was just, okay, everybody spike up again. Let's go. Fire up, fire up. I mm-hmm. felt like we were forever trying to do that. So New York is so unique and awesome in its um, proximity to the fans, and everybody feels like they're part of the show. And then number four, I'll say Paris. Um, one, we no longer carry it. So there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you didn't renew rights with us? You're out. No. Um, we, we actually don't carry the French Open anymore. Um that's not to say we won't come to never know with the way these things work. Um, but I did like Paris a lot too. I mean, I love, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a boondoggle getting to go to Paris for two and a half weeks in the spring. Yeah. And that was really nice. But, you know, um, that's part of the job. Dick Embert told me that once. Um, I was so fortunate to get to spend a couple Australian Opens with him. And he knew I liked to travel. And he said, if you like to travel on somebody else's dime, you're perfect for this gig. I'm like, and I am perfect. <laughs> so that's my my ranking of the four. Long winded, but I hope I didn't upset anybody. <laughs> no, that that's great. I mean, I can't I can't believe you hate the the French Open, but no, I'm just joking. Uh, uh, do you mind if I ask you? Can I ask you about some some individual players? Sure. And I think where I would like to start uh, coming off her U.S. Open victory, her second U.S. Open and and third major is Naomi Osaka. And it just seems like she is on the verge of, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I I don't want to lead you too much with this question, but I guess from from a more layperson tennis fan standpoint, Mm -hmm. it seems like she's the natural next star once I and and I don't want to count Serena out uh, anytime soon but it seems like she's next and and could honestly be like if she's not already one of the most popular female athletes across the world well I mean by Forbes magazine she's now the highest paid female athlete she out you know she surpassed Serena this year so she's the highest paid female athlete I think it was upwards of 39 million last year um a lot of it endorsements obviously but I think she's a superstar, you know, and I think she's just coming into her own. I mean, she's 22, right? So let's think of how we were, you know, the year you graduated college. I know. <laughs> so let's, you know, let's give her a minute to develop. And um, I just think she's a star. She's, she's come really far in the two years that she burst onto the scene as far as um, communicating and finding her voice and understanding like, her passions and her power because she has a lot of it. Um, as evidenced by, you know, she thought she would just pull out of her semifinal of the Western and Southern, and instead um, she shut down both tours and, you know, yeah. tournaments around the world. So it shows you the influence, um, you know, she has and and the following she has. And, and also the, that was her. That was, you know, that was all her. And I've spoken then, you know, obviously since with her team, and her agent, and and they said, you know, their message was very clear. They had a feeling as she was watching what the other sports were doing, she was going to want to do something. Mm-hmm. So they said, you know, she called and said, this is what I'm going to do. 
And she, you know, had visited Minneapolis during George Floyd, the protests in Minneapolis on her own, you know, just to be, as she told me, I wanted to be part of something in real time. I never had the chance to do that because of tennis. Tennis was shut down and I went to be a part of something like that in real time. You know, told no one, just went. So it's a very authentic um, position for her to take. And so she basically told her team and they said, we're behind you. We have your back, but we're going to go about this the proper way. And you're notifying the tournament. You're notifying all your sponsors that this is what you intend on doing. And then you do it, which is great. And I think that's what a good representation should do. It shouldn't let her just, you know, do something. And then they're scrambling and it's all reaction mode. Um, you know, but guide her on how, as a professional who commands what you do, this is how you handle yourself. And I thought she handled it perfectly. And I thought it was 100% the right thing to do. And I was so proud of how she expressed herself in, you know, the interview the next day. Because two years ago, she would have, you know, and, and admittedly so, had said, like, um, um, you know, throughout, throughout mm-hmm. the interview. And she's still reserved. Um, and that's just her personality. Um, you know, I'm really glad sometimes with young athletes who do them rush into getting all this media training. <laughs> I feel like they can be little zombies. Yeah. And I love that she hasn't done that and she's developing in her own time and and she's and she's a fantastic player. I mean she's the best player in, in the world right now, I think. <laughs> and um you know, and that's also important. And she realizes, as you know, Serena has modeled for every young player, your your message is even more powerful. And what you can achieve is more powerful if you're out there as number one in the world or you're out there chasing history. You know, and we see that with all the athletes. I mean, LeBron's message is extremely powerful, even more so because he's the greatest player right yeah. now, you know, who's, who's in the game. So, she she recognizes that, and that's what she you know she said about the U.S. Open. I mean, that was really a lot of tennis she played to pull off you know getting to the final, and ultimately not being able to play it with the Western and Southern, but then getting all the way through. And the, the position she took was very emotional, and you know there was a lot on her plate when she took her her stand, and to then still go on and win the tournament, the U.S. Open. I was beyond impressed. And, um, you know, and she said, I, I'm, as long as I'm out here, so is my message. And I think that's pretty incredible to recognize as a young person. And then her game is, yes, definitely the best out there. I, I think she's the best player in the world right now. That, that, that is awesome. And, and you, you hit it exactly. I am blown away by two years ago when she won the U.S. Open, how she just seemed shy and reserved. And, and obviously some of that had to do with Serena and, just, just the force right. of her words and actions this year—it's, it's quite impressive. I, I was a fan of hers before, and I, I think not only myself, but, but I, I think she's really gonna develop some, some, you know, really loyal, strong fans through all of this. So I, I, I couldn't be so. more impressed with her. Yeah, I agree. The other big, I, and I got to ask you about this, and uh-huh. it, it's probably the, the whole Novak, Djokovic situation. Uh, yeah. um, uh-huh. For those, and I count myself among those, can, can you talk a little bit about the expectations <laughs> of the etiquette and how players are supposed to act in the game of tennis mm-hmm. and, and what made his act so egregious that it deserved, you know, 
right. defaulting his match. Can, can you go into it, that a little bit? Yeah. I think where a lot of people in the debates that followed, um, they were debating intent, whether or not he intended to cause harm or injury. That's not the rule. <laughs> it's a very black and white rule. You hit a line person, you hit a ball kit with a ball or a racket because of an action with reckless disregard for consequences, you're out of the tournament. It is cut and dry. Every kid, every player knows that from the time they're very young. It is a very black and white rule. Intent never factors into it. Now, that being said, I guess you could argue if you were going to debate it, um, maybe debate whether or not the rule still makes sense. You know, debate whether or not all the money that's at stake in these tournaments now, both for the tournament, for the broadcaster, for the competition, for the player, is that still, you know, is that type of like country club rule, say, is that still appropriate? Should we be looking at intent? Should we look at past actions? You know, but then you get into a player who's ranked 200 getting treated differently than a player who's, you know, ranked number one in the world. And mm -hmm. you don't want that in a competition either. So it's a very black and white rule. As soon as he did it, there wasn't a, an analyst on our team that, you know, I mean, other than John, it was like, can't they find a way to keep the guy in the tournament? Which, trust us, we were all sitting there saying, oh my God, are you kidding? Like, 2020 has been such a dumpster fire to begin with. And now we finally staged this U.S. Open, which seemed impossible a month ago, and Novak's getting tossed from the tournament. Like, it was the biggest, this is so 2020 moment that I can recall in the past, you know, how many years of sports casting. I was like, are you kidding me? But, um, but it, there wasn't a single person who wasn't like, oh my God, he's, he's gone. Mm -hmm. He's done. And I think if you look at Novak's body language when he was arguing, he knew he was too. I mean, he, he argued his case and he tried, but he wasn't that demonstrative. I mean, he, you know, he, he can get pretty fired up. I think he knew. You know, unfortunately, he crossed a very, you know, a very black and white rule. And he went on the other side of it. It's, there's, it's really no room for debate. There's not at all. I know the next day, you know, Stephen A. was out there, you know, screaming about how idiotic and stupid it all was. And, um, you know, intent, no, of course he didn't intend to hurt anybody. But intent is not part of it. And that's that. So, it, you know. Trust me, I was very sad to see him leave, you know, from a tournament standpoint. But then I think we ended up, it was nice, you know, the final watching those two young guys, you know, yeah. just try to keep it together to, to get a title gave us an, a new and interesting perspective on the sport too. So, you know, you find the story wherever it is, you're not going to make it up. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was the right call to, to you know, default Novak. I'm not fishing for you to say anything controversial, but Novak strikes me as a strange, I, I don't know if strange or <laughs> unconventional, uh, weirdly driven type of person. And I think it manifests in a lot of different ways. Uh, he made a lot of noise with his big party that, you know, obviously flew in the face yeah. of all COVID stuff. Um, yeah, you know some of his his food regimens and, and just all of that. What, what's what's your kind of overall take on Novak Novak as as yeah. a person and yeah. a player? Um, well, as a player, he's 
you know, is a brilliant player. I mean, he's incredible. And um, he will probably end up with all the records. You know, he just has the years and the opportunities um, on Federer. I mean, he's going to chase him down. And it's, it, he is driven to get all of the records. And he, he likely will. Um, he's an incredible player. I think he's a very interesting person. Um, I've, I've heard him described in so many different ways. He's very complicated. <laughs> Some people say he's dark. Um, somebody this past week after, you know, the, the, de- the default and that he is brilliant in theory and in, and in practice, you know, kind of like that was a brilliant idea in theory, almost like his, his tour, right? Brilliant yeah. idea, idea in theory. Here you are with all this time on your hands and you'd love to put something together for charity. But then in practice, oh my gosh, what a screw up, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he can be like that. I mean, brilliant. He committed to coming to the U.S. Open. And honestly, without Novak and Serena, I'm not sure it gets staged. Mm-hmm. You know, he commits, he helps get the tennis world back on its feet, helps us put on this Grand Slam championship you know, gets other people committing to come from Europe, whatever it takes. Well, Novak's going, I guess I'll go, you know. And then he whacks the line does. And you're like, oh my gosh. Like, again, great yeah. theory. And in practice, this was his first major of his career that he didn't have Roger or Rafa. It was truly Novak. I mean, he was head and shoulders above the rest as a favorite. That aside, it was Novak leading the charge, and that happened to him. Like, how does that happen? (laughs) So he's very, very complicated. Um, I also think, you know, he also has a fascinating childhood story. And I'm certainly not a psychologist. And I'm not even a sportscaster who likes to play one like (laughs) many do. Oh, let let me tell you what he's thinking. I have no idea what people are thinking. And I never pretend to. Um, But, you know, think about his childhood. I mean, he spent many years at night in Belgrade, in a, in a bomb bunker, right? He played many of his formative years of tennis as a preteen in an empty swimming pool because their tennis courts had all been blown up during war. So, you know, it's it's a very interesting background. He, I think sometimes he, he fights and he plays with a bit more desperation um, than you'd expect from somebody who seemingly has everything under the sun. There's a, there's an element of, of desperate and and um, and just far more fight in him than than I see in you know some others. And that's not to say not Rafa. Like Rafa is a great fighter, like on the court, but he, he doesn't have an edge. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely an edge to Novak. Is Roger? It seems to me like if you could not create in a PR laboratory a, a more perfect. Tennis player, <laughs> face of the game, than Roger Federer. It, for yeah. for those of us on the outside that don't quite have the same access, is it is it possible that he is as nice and charming and thoughtful and mild mannered, like in in quote unquote real life, as he just appears to be every time he's on our television right. screen? You know, this is how I look at it. Even if he is just like like pulling my leg every time he sits down and does an interview. 
like, don't ever tell me the truth. Like, let me just <laughs> believe in this man. Okay. Um, you know what he is? He's, he's a great, he's a great champion of the sport. Like, he's not just a winner. He's a champion. And when he commits to doing press, he sits down and gives you time and gives you insight and tells stories like he has nowhere else in the world to be that day. And his, you know, his, his team can be standing off the wings of your set and he, you know, they can be given the rap sign. He doesn't pay attention. He is there to do what he's doing at that moment the best he can. And he's terrific. Um, same when he's, you know, when he's on the, when he's on the court, I mean, he made, he's made adjustments and has done so many different things to his game from coaching to rackets to shots, you know, and it quietly goes about it, but it's forever just kept perfecting his game to be able to remain in the game. And then the best thing, you know, Andy Roddick, one time I, I asked Andy, like, what if, if you could have anything of Federer's, what would you want? Right. Because I think Federer's most underrated. Everyone would say, Oh, the server, I want his forehand. I would want his movement. If he's so graceful and I think it's kept him healthy and he's such a great mover. Andy said attitude. He can lose better than anyone I know. Huh. And it, and it keeps him in the game because he doesn't get that upset by it. Right. And, yeah. and he's just able to, to hang around. He always throws at the end of a grand slam, he throws a party for his team, like a dinner party or, you know, but something. And, and the first year Stefan Edberg was helping him, it was down in Australia and he had lost, but, you know, went to the quarters or the semis or something that he did for, you know, 26 straight times. And, and he had lost and he had this like dinner party and, you know, champagne and, and everything for the team to thank everybody. And, and Edberg said to a friend of mine who was there, what does he do when he wins? Like, cause <laughs> this is crazy. He, he just takes it like that. Now that being said, when he's on court, you know, he's as, he's as nasty as anybody. I mean, he'll be, one time we were at the French Open and I don't mind telling the story because he told it on the air and he turned around and looked up into the audience and said, shut the F up. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, wow, like who's he talking to? You know, and I couldn't believe yeah. it. The, the next day he came on set and I was trying to explain away why he might have said that. And he looks at me, he goes, a lady was talking and I wanted her to shut the F up. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, Roger. You know, but I mean, so he was, you know, look, he gets angry out there on the court, you know, but now he has such a halo over his head. We don't even see it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I refuse to believe it. <laughs> nope, that wasn't Roger getting angry. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, he's obviously a great competitor, world class, but then, you know, this year in Australia, and I think I might have even tweeted this, um, because I really felt it as I was watching. He was so injured in his either, I think it was his quarterfinal when he saw Novak, quarter or semi, but he was injured. I mean, it, it, his his knee was no go. I mean, he's had it odd parted on twice since then. You know, that's why he's done for the year. Um, and he went to the doctor and said, you know, am I hurting it more by playing on it? And you know, the doctor said, you're not going to further damage it, but you're not going to move better by a good warm up or a day off or a treatment over the next, you know, 30 hours. Nothing's changing. It is what it is. He was like, all right, I'll play the match. And I, I was struck by that's what a champion does. He looked after the tournament, right? Made sure the Australian open 
padded big Federer Djokovic match that they sold out. He gave you know gave Djokovic a competitive set and a half. Maybe he took the first set. I can't remember. He looked after the tournament. He didn't default. He gave Djokovic the win, which is what you do, you know, and and he protected the sport. You know, he gave the sport a big day. And I thought that's, and then even in press, he said, look, I have like a 17% chance of winning that match. Mm-hmm. I, he knew he wasn't going to win, but he played his, his butt off as best he could on, on a gimpy knee. And he took care of everybody, including the sport. And I just think that's, that's fantastic. That's what you want all athletes to do. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about. I, you could go down the street. I, I think you could sit, you could pull tennis fans. You know, people who identify as tennis fans, and ask yeah. them. You know, who who is the highest rated American women's tennis player right now? And I'm not sure how many of them would would correctly answer that. Sophia Kennan. You know, how many of them would know that she won the Australian Open earlier this year? Right. What, what do you make of her? I believe she's 21. You know, when you assess her game or long term prospects yeah. is, is she more flash in the pan is she here to stay what what how should people think of uh, Sophia well I don't think she's a flash in the pan I think we have had recently women grand slam champions who are and that's more because of their commitment to the game um, you know I think it's hard for some of these younger players you know they win one tournament now and they they, they have three million dollars in their pocket you know uh-huh. and and a ton of celebrity and, you know, I don't know, you know, for some it might be a lack of then motivation or focus or they're instantly pulled in a million in one direction. Um, you know, the celebrity that comes with being a female champion in an individual sport, I still think is unrivaled with a team sport, you know? Um, and, and, and so you, you have some outside influences. I don't see that being Sophia's um, problem. She's very, very focused, and her father and they're very much a team, and they're very focused. Um, she will not have a letdown. That being said, as a ranker beater, love and love like yesterday in Rome. I, I have no idea, but I don't know what happened. To her. <laughs> but that was a little. Anytime you see love and love, you're like, what happened? Um, you know, so that that is definitely startling. She played very well at the U.S. Open. You know, she got she got far. Um, and yet none of our analysts picked her to win. You know, the, the, the people who really know tennis um, felt the courts were too fast and playing too big for her. She's not very big, you know, um, gets a ton of stuff back. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, but she has her Grand Slam championship and she is number five in the world. And um, I think she's here to stay just because of her work ethic. I don't know if she'll always be the number one American. I think Somebody who broke through this year at the U.S. Open, Jennifer Brady, has more natural athleticism and and size and speed and um, and weapons than Sophia. But you know, it, Sophia is not going to go away from a lack of hard work. That is one hundred percent true. Who, but who, I don't know where she's going to be in five years. Uh, well, and we want. We, yeah, I, one of my favorite things is I have no idea. It'll be fun to. We'll it'll be fun to find out. Yeah. Um, right. Who 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 are the one two names on on the men's and women's side that you know if you have an opportunity to watch them live uh, most yeah. excite you? And I, I guess probably the natural like on the men's side certainly the big three. But I, I'm just curious like for your for your tastes and and for what you yeah. like out of tennis. Who who are those who are those players? 
there's, there's often, you know, sometimes when I'm announcing, I'm like, I wonder if people understand what the heck I'm saying when I go, oh, in this match, he's always a great watch. You yeah. know what I mean that? Because it's usually their style of play. Or, you know, I think it's terrific. I like watching he's a young Canadian, Dennis Shapovalov. Now, he's been around like four years and um, played really well at the Open, um, gets back into the quarters. He has a huge lefty, like one-handed backhand that he like, he like practically hits his back on his backswing. It's just this long, big motion. Um, and he's, he's a great person to watch play. And I like um, Stefanos Tsitsipas, the Greek, um, the young Greek player. I like watching him play. You know, of course you like Roger or Rafa. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Rafa play in person, but until you see him play in person, you cannot believe the physicality he brings to the game of tennis. It's just intensity personified. It's unbelievable and unmatched how physical he is on the court and how he does it on every point over and over again. Um, it's just, wow. Like, how does he do that? Yeah. <laughs> and so I like, I do, I like watching um, some of the old and some of the young. And on the women's side, I do like watching Naomi um, because I think she has a lot. Um, she has kind of, all the power and everything that the generation of before her had, but she also has the movement and, and the speed. And I like, I think she um, has an instinct about the game, maybe that some of the players her age don't have yet. Um, a lot of the women, you can tell they look over to the coaching box every single point, sort of like, okay, discreetly coach me, tell me what to do next, you know? Mm -hmm. And you don't see her doing that. I, she really, you know, mentally can, think her way through a match. And I like watching her for that to see what is she, what are her adjustments? You know, what, what is she seeing that, you know, others aren't able to pick up with this player or whatever it might be. So I like watching her a lot. Um, I still like watching Serena a lot because, you know, every time I see her playing, I'm like, thank God she's still out there. You know, I mean, yeah. You know, I certainly only want her to play as long as she wants to play. You know, she, she deserves to have, have a life and, you know, not have to hang around and keep playing for, you know, for the industry that loves her. But, um, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, it's like seeing Tiger still play golf. You're like, okay, so maybe it's not what we remember in the heyday, but we're still seeing an icon out here and it's pretty sweet, you know. So I still like watching her. I like Bibi Andrescu, the other young Canadian. She didn't play the Open, but she won it last year. Um, it, her big question is if she can ever stay healthy. Yeah. But I like watching her play as well. Did I forget anybody obvious? Uh, 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 no, no, no. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. That was that was awesome. Um, I have just a few more. Uh, just they can be more rapid fire if you'd like. Um, okay. If I gave you that means hurry up. Go ahead. No, 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 no. That means I'm very conscious of your time. I feel like I've taken more of okay. it than than I asked for already. Uh, so, so yeah, feel free to expand on on any of your answers. I would love that. But if I gave okay. you through the year twenty twenty five. Uh, does an American male win a Grand Slam by that time? Oh my God! I know, it's been forever. Um, let's see. Would an American man win a Slam? Twenty twenty-five. No. I tend to agree. Let me see. Yeah, I four years. Yeah, no. If so, can I have a caveat? Uh, please. So it's going to be someone 
one of the two. I would love for it to be Francis Tiafo. I think he's very good for the sport. Look, I think any man who breaks through, an American man, is going to be good for, for American tennis. That being said, I really like Francis. But I was, I was disappointed in kind of his lack of fight, his final match at the U.S. Open. And I'm like, like that's what it takes to get Ben past the fourth round quarter semis championship. You know, like second week, he's yet to show big second week tennis of a major, but he's, he's very talented. I think if an American male wins, it's going to be one of these huge servers, either Fritz or Opelka. Riley Opelka or Taylor Fritz, that they can stay healthy and serve their way on a really fast court to a championship. Love it. Um, but it's not going to be super pretty tennis. Uh, yeah. It's going to be like Gorana Ivanisovic tennis. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it'll be like. Okay. Um, as, as, a, as a person that has uh, – so my, my extent of live tennis, I grew up in Cincinnati, so I, I was very fortunate. Oh, I got to – yeah, I've gotten to attend the Western and Southern. I've never been to a Grand Slam event. What should okay. my number one tennis bucket list uh, event be? If you could tell – you know, is it, is it a night match at the U.S. Open? Is it breakfast at Wimbledon? What, what would you tell me um, – you know what? I, my advice would be, regardless of the Grand Slam, um, regardless of the tournament, if you've never been to one, go to one one of the first couple days when you still have really good players on the outside courts. You know, a lot of people want that big ticket to Ash, but the first couple rounds, that is where the most lopsided matches usually exist, right? Because it's Federer against a wild card or Serena against a wild card. Or sometimes you have a great match, you know, out of the blue, like Halep and Sharapova a couple of years ago and Sharapova was just coming back. But usually early matches on the big stadium courts are rather lopsided, but outside get a ticket where you can also like a ground pass where you can just walk through the ground, take in kind of the, the county fair type atmosphere that surrounds these matches going on and see these players up close. That's the best. And also don't overlook like at the U S open getting to the practice court. Oh, it's yeah. just bench, it's bench seating and to watch, you know, watch a Rafa practice or a Novak practice um, is, you know, is amazing. So that I think is go to any grand slam you can, but don't just think if I don't have a ticket to the big venue, then it's not worth it. That, don't overlook outside court. That's perfect. That's a, that's such a good answer. Um, okay. My final question for you. And then I, I promise okay. I'll let you go on a, on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> are, 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 do you read much? And I want to ask you two things. If so, okay. I, do you have a particular favorite tennis related book? And yeah. um, secondly, what, what's, what's one of the best books you've read recently? Okay. I did do quite a bit of reading during um, COVID, as I guess everyone did. I would go like a week I binge, then a week I read, then I binge, then I read. Um, so two of my favorite books I read, or well, I would say three, and they have nothing to do with one another, is I loved a book called The Book of Longings, which is um, about if Jesus had a wife and what she would be all about back in the day. That was fantastic. The Book of Longings, uh, where the crawdads sing, um, which is completely different. And then I loved the 
Splendid and the Vile, which is about Winston Churchill. Okay. So All right. Those were three of my favorite during Corona. I don't read like a ton of tennis books. <laughs> um, I still point to one of, I thought, the most honest and kind of heartbreaking tennis books. Agassiz's book is, is a, good, mm-hmm. a good read, you know, if you were to read. A, a tennis book. Did you ever a, an autobiography? Did you yeah. ever come across the Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway? No. Okay. All I'll right. go look it up now. Okay. I've heard and I've heard um, I've I've heard very interesting things about that book and how his technique, his teaching technique, you know, how he wrote about it and started within the game of tennis, but how he's taken it to really any walk of life. Uh, so I, 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 yeah, I was curious about that one. And then the only uh, other one I'll plug for listeners, it's one of the absolute best things I've read. Uh, the late writer David Foster Wallace has a collection of essays he wrote about tennis in a book called String Theory. It, it's a collection of essays. Uh, one's about his his childhood growing up playing tennis. Uh, one is his Roger Federer uh big long profile but but that's another one for anybody listening and uh, certainly if if you're looking for some tennis reads those are well, two thank you for the suggestion uh, yeah yes, i will take them and read them i will although i thought you know we were quarantined together the entire espn um tennis team and we just all came home from living 23 days at the LaGuardia airport marriott <laughs> And when I walked out, I thought, there's a book in here. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I was, I was too busy to write it at the time. But, um, yeah, anyway, someday if you ever see a, a crazy book that doesn't use real names but has ridiculous stories, that's me writing about our tennis team in the LaGuardia Airport Hotel. <laughs> okay, I, I lied. I have to ask you one more question. What's it like, okay. and, and certainly being quarantined with him, what's it like hanging out with John McEnroe? Um, fun, quiet sometimes. <laughs> okay. You know, he he's super nice, and but he's John's very you know very quiet, and you're not always sure you know what he's thinking. But he's he's really nice. Like he never doesn't ask about your family. You know what are your kids up to? Like that sort of thing. And um, and he's nice. You can talk tennis with him. You talk, yeah, he, you can talk anything with John. Art music, you know, he's, I, I know, I mean, I wish I had a crazy story. Uh, no, but no, it's okay. He's just a nice person, and um, his wife Patty's around a lot when we're not quarantined, you know, comes to the U.S. Open, and she's lovely, and yeah, I mean, he, he's just a nice person. So. Did you ever watch the Curb Your Enthusiasm that he was in? I don't know if you watched that show. Like, did, does anybody? No. Uh, okay. Did you watch this past, this is, but this is John McEnroe in a nutshell. And I told him this one time when he accidentally FaceTimed me. And I was like, John, we were just watching you. Did you see his Mindy Cowling show on Netflix? It's uh, called Never Have I Ever? No, huh? Uh, okay. I think it's Never Have... Yeah, Never Have I Ever. So she... She's so brilliant. And she comes out with this really funny comedy series. It's about a young um, Indian uh, girl trying to grow up in America. Um, she's a total hothead as a kid. And, you know, she has Indian American parents who are trying to keep her very traditional. And she's in, you know, Northern California. No, she's in Malibu. So she's in um, California, trying to be a California kid. 
she has all these miscues throughout, you know, middle school, early high school years. And her inner monologue when she's kind of losing it is John. John McEnroe. Because her dad loves tennis. So her dad would always talk to her about John McEnroe. So my son, who I have a, as I said, two teenage boys, my youngest, he and all his friends were watching it on Netflix party. So he comes down and he's like, Mom, your friend John, who you work with, has this new show with Mindy Kaling on Netflix. And it's so funny. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then, yeah, sure enough, I, I'm like, only John McEnroe during quarantine can find new popularity in an audience that has no idea who he is. Right. Yeah. Cash in on a great comedy show. Work with one of the hottest talents in Hollywood during a pandemic. Like only thinking John can pull that off, and he did. But I'll have to watch the Kobe enthusiasm if I if I see it if I come across. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or you, you can just Google the clip. He he was in one episode, and it's it's pretty funny. I. Um... Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's a great great place to end it, Chris. This was such such a treat to talk to you. I, I love. Uh, I hope I didn't ask too many uh, dumb tennis questions, but it, it's such a treat to get to talk to somebody with with your experience and and expertise and perspective. So thank you for taking the time. Well, no, it's a pleasure. I actually I like what what you and your your gang there do. I think it's really smart, and I think you're doing all the right things with with the media as it should be done so i was happy to join you and um, i wish you i wish you guys the best thank you so much thank you so much and and enjoy your weekend you too take care okay Bye. yep see ya Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who